Well, let's pray. We're going to return to Mark's Gospel. We're getting very near the end, and uh, we've been working through that in what's for me a little unusual way, kind of looking at it through the lens of individual people that appear to us in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we're going to look at Christ through uh, the, the, the lens of two different characters here toward the end of Mark's Gospel this morning. But before we do that, I want to pray and ask for God's help. Father, as we open your word together, we are mindful that the truths that are here are spiritually discerned and understood, and that means we need the help of your Holy Spirit with us this morning. It's not a matter of exercising our intellect or bringing our past knowledge and, and experience to bear upon this text. It's a matter of our submitting our hearts to you, the great teacher and instructor, and being willing to obey as you lead us. We pray that you would illuminate our hearts that we might understand this word and activate our minds that we might grasp the truths that are here. That we might see more than just a story of events that unfolded in those last days and even hours before your crucifixion and resurrection, but that we might perceive the, the powerful gospel as it, as it is being revealed to us through the Spirit. First of all, help us to see Jesus as He is, our Savior, our Lord, our King and Master. Help us to see ourselves as we truly are, not to play a role of, of, of religious hypocrisy, not to overestimate our personal resolve to follow You or obey You, but that we might humbly submit ourselves to Your authority and to this Word. Would You bless the proclamation of your, world, not, of your word, not only in this place, but as it goes out throughout the world today. Would you save those who do not have a personal relationship with you and draw them compellingly to yourself? Would you strengthen the saints, some of whom are so weary and worn from life that, that their faith is weak on this day? Give them help and hope. And then we pray for those, Lord, who, who just need that assurance that you are near, that you have not left them or abandoned them. Oh God, grant that to them today. We are thankful to be gathered here in your name and pray for your blessing in the powerful, saving name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to Mark 14. If you're not already there, Mark 14. Now, if I, if I say, Peter the blank, and I'm talking about Simon Peter, one of the 12 disciples, how would you fill in the blank? Peter the blank. Give you a second to think, and then maybe you can offer some suggestions. All right? And, and wave at me. That'll help me, because I can't see any mouths moving right now. So maybe just give me a little quick wave or something like that. But how, how are we filling in? Some suggestions? Okay, Matt? Peter the bold. All right, that's a great word to describe Peter. How else would you fill that in? Peter the disciple is a good word, thank you. Unfiltered. All right, Billy. The rock, good one. Uh, some general words we're probably just assuming. How about the apostle, right? The preacher. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of things that begin to come to mind. Now, if I say Judas, the blank, how would you fill in that blank? Betrayer. Betrayer. 
Any other words that genuinely, honestly come to mind? I think we could come up with some other words to describe Judas, but we're all kind of stuck on betrayer, aren't we? There's a reason for that. And even as we look at the text this morning, we're going to discover some things together that I think are significant in helping us understand that both of these men actually walked almost an identical path up to a particular point, but then a significant event happened for each of them, and it changes the way all of us think about them to this very day. And it's not the event that maybe you would automatically think. So we want to look at the the scriptures together. Now, to put it in its context, over the last couple of weeks in the Gospel of Mark, we've looked at two particular women, haven't we? We looked, first of all, at Mary of Bethany, who poured out what might have been an heirloom passed on to her from her mother, a very expensive ointment valued about a year's salary, and she poured that out on Jesus, preparing him in advance for his burial. Then we looked last week at Mary Magdalene, a woman who was, who was oppressed and possessed by seven demons at one point. And Jesus powerfully rescued her and in love brought her near to this group of disciples. And she was among several women who followed with Jesus and the 12 disciples uh, from Galilee through Judea all the way to the cross. And there we found sweet, faithful Mary Magdalene ministering to Christ even through his death and beyond to the resurrection. These two women are exemplary in their service and worship of Jesus Christ. Both of them had experienced the powerful love that transformed them from what they once were into what we now know them to be through the gospel accounts. And both of their stories show us what it means to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and mind. Now today we're going to look at two disciples that I've already named who experienced very different outcomes. And those two disciples are Judas and Peter. Two questions for you to think through this morning. First of all, what causes a disciple to forfeit his soul? And I want to clarify right now that when I use the word disciple, that is not equivalent with true believer. I'll distinguish that. I won't say a lot about that, but I I just want to insert that. Then a second question, what hope is there for a disciple who fails? For disciples who fail. Now look at Mark 14, verse 10. We're going to pick up the story here. This is uh, shortly before uh, Jesus is betrayed, condemned, and crucified. But Mark is giving us some of the backstory of the events that are happening during the week of Passover. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas is on a pathway to destruction. There are four things about his journey on that pathway that I think we need to note. From the scriptures itself, we we read in Mark's gospel, he went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. If you do some comparison with other gospels, Mark doesn't record the specific financial agreement they reach, but in Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, verses 14 and 15, you find specifically that when when Judas goes to betray Jesus and says, how much will you pay me to betray him to you? They gave him 30 pieces of silver. In the Old Testament, that was the penalty paid by an owner of an ox that gored to death uh, another person's slave. It's not a small amount, but in the Jewish mind, to read this particular account, they would equate 30 pieces of silver with the price of a slave. 
In today's terms, today's financial terms, just to give you some ideas, some have estimated it to be about four months' salary. So it's not a small amount. Maybe to put it in, in terms that we might understand even better, the cost of a good used car. Zechariah 11.13 refers to this sarcastically as the lordly price at which Messiah was priced. Hardly lordly, is it? No, it belies and reveals something to us about the heart of Judas, and that's his greed. In greed, he exploits his relationship with Jesus, takes advantage of this personal, intimate knowledge with Jesus, not only who he is, but where he is. So he's looking for a convenient opportunity to give him over to these religious rulers who are plotting to kill Jesus. In greed, for greed, Judas exploits his relationship with Jesus. There's a second truth that emerges in the story of Judas, and that is this. In hypocrisy, he rejects the love of Christ. I use the term hypocrisy, and it's going to be poignant today because almost everybody in this room is wearing a mask of some kind right now. That's a, a, a mask designed to, to promote health and well-being, right? But there are other masks like actors wear or even kids wear when they dress up for a costume party or Halloween uh, where, where they're trying to totally mask an identity. And that's the kind of mask that Judas is wearing. He had done such a great job of it that at that very intimate Passover supper that Jesus was enjoying with the disciples, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, not one of them can figure out who it is. Judas knows, but that's how skilled he had become at wearing this religious mask. Now, a couple of things from Mark's gospel, if we read on through verses 17 to 21, you begin to see a, a, a side of the conversation that Jesus is having and he's not just speaking for the sake of the disciples, but he's speaking in a way to let Judas know, I know who you are and what you're doing. Look at verse 17 with me. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, it's a strong word of affirmation, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to one, another, to say one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. And then he says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. There's a specific warning and a sobering warning being given by Christ, and it comes out of a heart of love. And verse 21 is is stronger than we can really appreciate. When he says, whoa, it's the pronouncement of a coming, impending destruction for this person. It's a love that warns in that particular moment, those final moments before Judas leaves the table to conclude this betrayal. But think of the, the years that had preceded this, where after receiving that personal call from Jesus to follow him, to be one of his disciples, how often he had heard the calls to repent of sin, to believe in Christ, to believe the gospel. One of the most beloved passages in all the gospel is what John wrote in chapter 3 of his gospel, saying in verse 18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Don't you wonder how Judas heard words like that? Did he ever once think to himself, I'm the condemned one, already living under condemnation because I don't truly believe 
in Jesus Christ as an act of faith from my heart. John went on to write in verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And I think, Judas, that's you. The particular manifestation of that love was his love for money. If you read through some of the other Gospels, they refer to Judas as a thief. And not just that he stole from any old person, he actually stole from the, from the communal money chest that Jesus and the disciples used for their ministry. He's an embezzler. He's a hypocrite. I pause and ask you to consider, are you just playing a religious part? Are you wearing a mask of discipleship behind it? There's no true life in you because you've never repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. You, you were as eager to come today, not because your heart was longing to be fed from the Word, but because you've got to keep up the show. You, you've got to make sure that family and friends know that you are a religious, committed person. Oh, my friend, Judas was as religious as any person ever was, but he was on a pathway to destruction. There's a third thing about Judas that we learn from the Gospels. There came a moment after he had completed this betrayal where he realizes, as Matthew 27, verse 3 says, he sees that Jesus is condemned. Listen to what Matthew goes on from there to write. He, that is Judas, changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. There's regret. There's a kind of sorrow. There's an honest recognition that he's actually sinned by betraying innocent blood. But you know what you don't find anywhere in the Gospels, and even at this particular moment, you don't find the word repentance used with Judas. You never find the word faith appearing as part of his life. It's an act of despair that he chooses to go out and hang himself. And, and I know there are other things said about Judas and it was God's plan. There's no accident unfolding here. And, and we'll get even to a term that's sobering for all of us in just a moment. But I wonder to myself if he had actually fled to Jesus in that moment and said, please forgive me. On the basis of other scriptures, it would have happened. Now, he didn't, and there was nothing that was going to happen that night that would turn Jesus out of his path to the cross. But I am struck by the fact that you never read one gospel verse that says Judas was a humble, repenting man or a humble, believing man. And that brings me to the fourth part and the most sobering and that in his death, Judas is actually ruined for eternity. In John 17, verse 12, Jesus refers to him as the son of destruction. It doesn't simply mean that this is a man who will destroy himself by a, a, a suicidal act. No, it's a term that actually refers in other places of the scriptures, and that helps us to understand how Jesus is using it here. It refers to the state after death wherein a person is excluded from salvation, wherein an individual, instead of becoming 
what he or she might have been through that work of salvation that Jesus Christ does is actually lost and ruined for eternity. Suffering under God's wrath. And it never ends. It's easy to think of someone like Judas as being worthy of that kind of destruction. It's easy to think of other uh, horrific monsters in history like a Hitler or a Stalin or a Mao as being deserving of this kind of destruction that the Bible speaks of. But the reality is that for all of us born in sin, for any of us who refuse to put our faith in Jesus Christ and turn away from our sins as we do, that is what awaits 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 warns, and, and even through, through similar means and on a similar path, listen to this, this is where the Apostle Paul writes to his, his son in the faith, Timothy, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Oh, I, I pray that the same kind of greed that drove Judas to exploit his relationship with Jesus, to ultimately betray him in order that he might put a, a, a small sum of money in his pocket is not the kind of greed that actually is driving some of you away from Jesus Christ on this day. But if this is reality, that you'd rather have 8,000 bucks in your pocket, a nicer car in your driveway, than Jesus himself because that's essentially what Judas was choosing on that night. You're headed down the same path. It's a pathway to destruction. There's a second pathway that opens up, though, in this text, and I want to go there in just a moment. Before we do, though, again, what's, what's missing in Judas' life? Humility, brokenness, repentance, faith. You don't find any of that with reference to his life. And that's why... As I asked that question a moment ago, when we fill in a blank behind his name, we get stuck on betrayer. Go back to Mark's gospel and now look at verse 27. Another pathway that the Lord brings us to, and it's a pathway that he's going to walk specifically with Peter, but the other ten are included in this as well. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he, that is Peter, said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let, let's be generous with Peter here and not act as if, you know, he's kind of in this category by himself. He's the point guy. He's often right out front leading the charge. That's why we use words like bold and um, others that, that were coming to mind. We love Peter. We love Peter in part because we all relate to him, don't we? Oh, he means well. But here at this particular point, he is disagreeing with the prediction of Jesus because he overestimates the strength of his resolve to follow Jesus. I mean, nobody questions him. We, we've watched him. We've known him well enough to this point that he's fully sincere when he says, I won't deny you. But Jesus says plainly, you will all fall away. He uses a, a word there that's really strong. And it's, it, it paints for us a, a graphic image. Falling away, um, there's, a, there's another word I think that might help you. You're going to be scandalized by me. 
before this night is over. What Jesus is saying, you're actually going to take offense because of your relationship with me. You're going to be filled with a kind of disgust and revulsion that will drive you away from me. You're going to reject me before the night is over. And then Jesus quotes the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's where that's coming from. This is the word of the Lord. But what the disciples miss in that particular moment, and I want to draw your attention to, is that after quoting Zechariah, Jesus immediately says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now hold on to that. We're going to come back around to that. But that's actually a a more significant statement than those men could really understand and grasp at that particular moment. Let's go back to Peter, though. In sincerity, he promises to be faithful. Verse 29, even though they all fall away, I certainly will not. I mean, he's saying it as emphatically and forcefully as he possibly can. But again, he's grossly overestimating the the strength of his commitment to God. Jesus reinforces the prophetic prediction. Truly, I tell you this very night, you will deny me three times. Peter, you're going to refuse that you even know me. Peter doubles down again. Verse 31, he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Isn't it amazing? It's another one of those amazing moments where Jesus said some, says something, and you would think by now that they would know when Jesus speaks, he always says the truth. He, he doesn't lie. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't even speak with hyperbole in really significant moments like this to kind of like yank chains. I mean, he's saying it straight up. You would think the conversation would go a little different direction where they might acknowledge, well, if this is what we're about to do, is there any way for us not to do it? I think to myself, I do the same thing, don't you? Grossly overestimate the strength of my commitment to God. Oh, God, I love you so much. I will serve you every day, every hour of the rest of my life. That's good for about 12 minutes some days. Or when I recognize I've blown it as as you and I've sinned, I say, oh, God, forgive me. I, I know it was wrong. I should never have done it. I will never do that again. 13 minutes. Peter not only overestimates the strength of his resolve, he underestimates the power of temptation that's coming his way, and we very often do the same thing. Look at Mark 14, verse 54, because after Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, and he's arrested, and that subsequent trial begins, Mark then records, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. We know from the other gospels that John was also in the vicinity. He actually went a little further in because he had some acquaintances uh, in the household of the high priest. So those two disciples are there. We should give them both credit for following as far as they did. But there are actually two different interrogations that open up at this particular point. And the most important one is the interrogation of Christ. And there he stands before the most powerful people in Israel under the examination and scrutiny of the chief priests and the whole council, as Mark records in verse 55, who were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. But then listen to this. When they ask him directly, verse 61, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And to reinforce this, so there's just no question whatsoever that he's claiming to be the divine God, the Son of God. He says, you will see the Son of Man. He's grabbing some Old Testament prophetic language that is designated for the Messiah alone. He says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
Now that's big time, and that's part of the reason that these religious leaders you know, begin to tear their clothes and cry out, he's blaspheming, he's blaspheming. I mean, that's as clear an affirmation to the question put to him as any person could ever give. Now there's a second interrogation underway, and this also is recorded in Mark's Gospel as well as the other three. Peter is standing in a smaller crowd, and these are not powerful people. As a matter of fact, two of them are just servant girls in the house of the high priest. Look at verse 67. One of them looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus, but he denied it. He's declaring that statement is untrue. And how does he do it? He says this, I neither know, and that's a word that has to do with theoretical knowledge of like, it's like, I don't even know who you're talking about. The second phrase, nor understand, that would have more to do with practical interaction or experience. That'd be like you or me just saying, yeah, First of all, I don't know this guy. I haven't even been around him. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. Do you think he heard it? I don't know. I suspect so. Because nobody else was there to to be an eyewitness. And Mark got that information from somewhere. I suspect that Peter shared it with him. Verse 69, the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And there's a little adjustment in the verb tense here that indicates it's extended denial. So probably he said multiple words or phrases and went on for a little bit, indicating, I I don't have a relationship with him. Look at the text. After a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Probably what they're pointing to is his accent. I was born in the South, in Georgia, for a brief time lived in Alabama, back to Georgia for a couple more years, and then just before my sixth birthday, we moved to South Carolina. I lived there until the day we moved to Utah three years ago. And even coming to Utah, I've had a number of people say, when we, you know, exchange a little bit about where you're from, where'd you grow up, that kind of thing, and and I tell them I'm from the South, they'll say, you don't sound like you're from the South. And I know exactly what they mean. Now, the biggest reason is my parents are from a little farm town in Southern Illinois, So I grew up hearing primarily just that kind of flat Midwest conversation. Some people might call it an accent. I just, it's not, I don't hear an accent. Now I could talk like I'm from the South. (laughs) And I can explain it to you even from the speech side of what's going on. And and I'm just going to say in the defense of my dear Southern family, friends, we sound like we're not as educated but we actually are. And don't ever make the mistake of saying, well, anybody can talk like they're from the South, you just have to talk like you're ignorant. Oh, don't ever say that in the South. That's partly not true. Actually, if you took a voice and diction class and and you could like dissect what's really going on with the various Southern dialects, as well as the accent, you'd realize that some of the things that that other regions just do because that's how they, they... learned it growing up in their own households, you just have to adjust a few little vowel sounds here and there. You're not changing vocabulary. You're not even changing syntax completely. You're not changing dictionary-level definitions of words. It's just the way you say it. And if you talk in a particular way, people go, you're from the South. Well, that's what's going on here because we know from historians that the Galileans are often mentioned in in writings of that particular era because, their dialect, because of their dialect. They were unable to distinguish between 
certain guttural sounds. We're kind of deep in the weeds of voice and diction right now. But Peter couldn't hide the fact that he was a Galilean. And here the, the, the group of bystanders around him are trying to piece some things together. And even his accent, his dialect, would be an indication that he's at least from the region where Jesus himself made his home and, and the primary center of ministry. Certainly, being a Galilean, he's had some interaction, some knowledge, but he's denying it all, even what his accent would indicate. He's so worked up at this particular point. Look at verse 71. He began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man. What a way to refer to Jesus. And again, giving Peter credit, he's the one who's spoken of him all through their earthly ministry as Lord. He's spoken of him respectfully at a couple of key times as rabbi or master. He spoke of him prophetically and confessionally, if I can put it that way, when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's spoken of Jesus in all the ways he should have to this point, but at this moment, in denying him, he speaks of him so impersonally, this man. But what he invokes here is... It's not simply that he used some bad words to try to like make an impression on the crowd. He actually invokes God's curse on himself and the bystanders if what he is saying is not true. Now think about that. We just watched another disciple that very night walk the pathway all the way into eternal destruction. And now Peter, in an effort to reinforce this denial and, and protect himself from whatever might transpire if he acknowledged his association and relationship with Jesus, actually invokes the same destruction on his own soul by God Almighty if he's lying. And we ought to pause at this particular moment and hold our breath for Peter's sake and say, will the God he just invoked to destroy him actually show up in this moment and destroy him? We can all be thankful that God didn't arrive in that moment to do what Peter actually prayed on his own head. In the same way, we can all be glad that God hasn't shown up to do to us what our sin deserves. For it's at this moment, after Peter has denied him three times and the last, as he employed a curse that something remarkable happens. He experiences the humbling conviction of Jesus. Look at Mark's text. Verse 72 says, Immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him. It's the word of Christ that begins to bring conviction. Jesus, I wasn't willing to believe it, but you said I believe my resolve was greater, but you said the word of Christ brings powerful conviction. Mark doesn't record this in his gospel, but Luke 22 verse 61 tells us that at this particular moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Oh, that's eye contact you'd never want to make. Any of you have parents who, when you stepped out of line, would give you the look? Probably most of you if not all of you. And if you never experienced that, you should be thankful on one hand, but I'm also sorry for you. Parents, we, we develop the look, don't we? Because you're in those settings where your child messes up and you're like, you know, I can't get you, I can't give you what is coming right now, but like fire comes out of those eyes. And sometimes the look is all that's necessary 
Now, our four children have responded differently to the look. One of them, that, I mean, we had to even be careful with the look. Because that child, who, uh, whose identity I will protect at this moment, would just wither. I don't think that when Jesus, this is just me, I don't know for sure from the text, I don't think the Lord looked at Peter with fire in his eyes. I suspect that he looked at him with the same love that was behind those warnings and all that teaching and living that had been going on for three years. But I'm sure of this, it was a look that penetrated Peter to his very soul. It reminds me of what Hebrews says, that all things are naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we must give account. And I'm sure that Peter felt absolutely naked in that moment. No wonder, as Mark describes the response of Peter, he uses these words in verse 72, he broke down and wept. And Matthew in chapter 26, verse 75 says, he wept bitterly, that is with agony. Why? Because he felt the weight of Christ's word on his soul, and he felt the weight of Christ's exposing gaze. And all of that boasting that he had done, I won't deny you, they might, I won't, I'll go with you even to death. All of those good intentions, all of that pride that was mingled in with those things, it's just all laid bare. Have you ever been to the point of breaking and weeping over your sin? Have you ever been to the point where the, the scaffolding of your pride or your religious hypocrisy just caved in under the weight of the Word of God or even the look of the Holy Spirit as He penetrates to the deepest recesses of soul and spirit? If you have and you've responded in the way He intended you to, you know that even an image like that, that, that is so poignant for us, is not a threat. But you would recognize, as Peter is coming to recognize in that, in, in that particular moment, that Jesus is actually doing something in love and leading him not just into a point of denial and failure, but wants to lead him far beyond it. That's why Psalm 51 verse 7 tells us the sacrifices of God, what he's really after, would not ever be measured in terms of a lamb or a goat or a bull or even some monetary sacrifice that you would bring into an assembly like this. But what God really desires from people who feel the conviction of their sin is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite or humbled heart, David says, oh God, you will not despise. And I'm confident that the bitter weeping, the agony of Peter's soul that night is being, that is being poured out in tears is an expression of Psalm 51, verse 17. But that's what positions Peter gloriously for the powerful restoration that's coming. Remember I said a few minutes ago, remember verse 28, Jesus promised that when he's raised up, he'll go before them to Galilee. Well, look at chapter 16, verse 7. After the women come to the grave of Jesus the, the day after the Sabbath, and they, they brought more spices and going to take care of things. Well, it's empty, right? We've been in, in and out of that for several weeks now. And the angels speak to them, and in verse 7, they actually say, go tell his disciples and Peter, I love that, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. When Jesus spoke those words, you will deny me and be offended by me tonight. 
That's what they got stuck on. They felt like it was an accusation of failure, of small commitment on their part, but I don't think any of them really heard or let alone understood the second part of that statement that Jesus had made. I, when I'm raised up, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. So the question is, what's in Galilee? Well, go to John's Gospel. John 21. And let's just walk through this for a couple of minutes. This is one of the most beautiful and powerful scenes in all the Gospels to me personally. You know the details. Peter denied him three times, invoked God's curse of destruction on his own head and even the little assembly that was around him. Well, now this is post-resurrection. They've returned to Galilee. They've actually gone fishing. And, and there's some question as to why they did it. I think it was more than a recreational thing. That, that was the industry that at least four of these disciples were involved in. And Peter's the one who suggests it, and they go do it. And they fished all night, and they, they haven't caught anything. Verse 4 says, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. He said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat. These are small boats, and you will find some. So they cast it. And you wouldn't think that, what, 15, 20 feet would make any difference? And it's not the distance, it's the Lord who's making the difference here, isn't it? They cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, that's how John refers to himself frequently, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went on board, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now skip to verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Remember how he bragged and boasts? Though all of these deny you, I won't. They might run away, I won't. I actually think that Christ's question has reference to, Peter, do you actually think your love for me is greater than these? And look at his answer. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he does use a little different word than what Jesus employs out of the language. Jesus has asked the word, do you really have great, loyal, undying affection for me? And Peter basically says, Lord, you know I have strong feelings for you. And he doesn't even touch the comparison in that question. But look at what Jesus says, feed my lambs. I'm sure Peter felt so destroyed after he denied Christ that he wondered if there was any opportunity to minister for Christ, let alone to follow him again. Verse 16, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I have strong feelings for you. Then Jesus says, tend my sheep. Verse 17, a third time Jesus speaks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And you hear a little bit of exasperation coming out in this phrase, don't you? Lord, you know everything. What does that everything include for Peter? The same kinds of things it includes for you and me. Lord, you know that I'm proud and arrogant. You know that I'm impetuous and foolish. You know that I'm well-intentioned, but so often weak in 
fulfilling my resolve to follow you. You know that I'm an ordinary man by birth. That's why he keeps referring to him as Simon, son of John. Not using Peter, the name that means rock, that Jesus had given him earlier. You know that I'm a working class fisherman by trade and nothing special. And even this last night, Lord, demonstrates I'm not even great at fishing. Didn't catch a thing until you showed up on the shore and said, net's on the other side. You know everything. But he does say, you know that I love you. I have strong feelings for you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. He denied him three times, and now in the presence of his fellow disciples, he's affirmed his loyalty to Christ three times. But what everybody's impressed with at that moment is not Peter's loyalty or the reaffirmation of his affection for Christ. What everybody is overwhelmed with is how kind and gracious Jesus is to restore this denier. And look at verse 19. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Isn't that beautiful? Peter, you're going to deny me. No, I'm not, Lord. Truly, I'm telling you, you all are going to be offended by me tonight. You're all going to run away from me. No, Lord, I'm telling you, they all might do it. I won't. Little girl shows up. You're one of them. I don't know the guy. Yes, you are. I'm telling you, I don't know him. You're from Galilee. How, how can you not know him, be associated with him? May God destroy me if what I'm saying is not true. And it's not destruction that falls. It's gracious, loving restoration. The complete failure of his commitment to Christ, the horrific moment that he invoked that curse of God upon himself, those are not the final words written over Peter's life in comparison to the tragic final words written over Judas. Why? Well, there is a response of humility and brokenness and repentance and faith. And this is a reminder to us, beloved, that there is more grace in God than there is sin in you at this moment. I'm telling you, I, I don't know what you have done, what you are guilty of, just like you don't know what I've done and what I'm guilty of in my lifetime. But, it, but if all of us walks humbly and in brokenness and faith and repentance before God, there is an infinite supply of grace to cleanse us from our sin, to wash it away, to transform us and make us useful followers. Now here's what Peter can't see coming and what the, the, the other 10 can't see at this particular moment. But we're talking in a matter of days, in a matter of days, 40 days after the resurrection, Pentecost, or 50 days uh, after, after this, Pentecost rolls around. And this man who was unwilling in a, in a private setting, just a handful of bystanders around this fire and, and under the accusation of two servant girls who have no authority whatsoever to bring condemnation uh, against him. He's unwilling to testify of his relationship with Christ. That same guy, because he's now empowered by the grace of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, stands in the most public place in Jerusalem and preaches a, test, a message that testifies to the, to the divinity of Christ, to the sinfulness of the, of the people who are listening to the message, calls them to repent. The Holy Spirit comes in great convicting power. Pentecost breaks out and thousands are converted. Only Jesus has the power to transform a person like that. It's not simply a do-over where Peter says, give me another chance, Jesus, I'll be faithful to you. No, this is a man who's completely broken of self and refilled with the love and grace and power of God Almighty. And that's why when I say the question or ask you to fill in the blank, 
Peter the. You, come up, you came up with all kinds of other options. Nobody said Peter the denier. Isn't that glorious? Some of you worry that some of your sins from the past will be the life-defining thing about you, not in God's sight if you come to him. But you don't know how bad I am. Can we, can we just stop with that? It doesn't matter whether I do or anybody else does because you don't know how bad I am. Let's talk about how great Jesus is. So here are the two concluding thoughts. A refusal to be humbled, broken, and repentant results in eternal death and destruction. That's true for everybody. It's not just Judas or Hitler or Stalin or their kind. But a willingness to be humbled, to be broken, and then restored by this same Christ will result in life and usefulness. So will you come to him or will you go from him? Only Jesus saves. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We feel its weight carries its own authority because it is the word of the living God. Oh, thank you for it. But we're also, we're also in awe, terrified by it at some point, places. We also feel the weight of your look as there's nothing hidden to your sight. But our prayer today is as you humble us under the conviction of your word and the power of that holy exposing gaze, you would do it with the view of restoring us in right relationship to you and in usefulness and service for you as you did with Peter. Please, please do that. As you continue to just pray and think through the text for a moment, what is the thing that you feel compelled of God to do right now? Is there a sin that you need to confess? Do you need to humble yourself, submit even to the weight of his word? Or are you going to continue to put on some kind of religious show, live a hypocritic life, be, be driven by your greed as Judas was or some other sin? It's leading you to destruction. Please, my friend, do not go one step further down that path. Would you just take that step of faith that he's calling you to right now? And for those of you who, who feel more aware of your sin right now than the grace of Christ, and particularly those of you who say, I, I have confessed that, I just feel so guilty, and I, I, I believe or think that God has forgiven me, can just give it to him and leave it with him. And you determine to go forward by faith, trusting him. That's the difference grace makes. Father, seal the truth and weight of your word in our hearts. Change us by your powerful grace. Thank you for the love of this mighty Savior who died the death we deserved and rose from a grave that we could never raise ourselves from. All praise to him. We pray in his holy, saving name, Jesus. Amen.